2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 5. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open there to Second uh, Timothy, chapter three. Let's pray. Lord, we have sung a great prayer uh, just minutes ago that as we open your Word, that you would show us Christ. And God, I want to echo that prayer one more time. That your Spirit would give us ears to hear you in your word, eyes to see you, that you would, in fact, show us Christ as we look into your word this morning, and we would see your glory, and that our hearts would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a scene in Tolkien's Hobbit where the dwarves are, yeah, you're laughing because another Tolkien illustration, sorry, guilty as charged, but anyhow, there's this great scene. In, uh, in Tolkien's Hobbit, where the dwarves are preparing to cross through Mirkwood, this dark, dangerous forest with all these mysterious obstacles, um, but it's the only thing standing between them and their home, the Lonely Mountain, the kingdom they're trying to take back. So they have to go through Mirkwood. But the evening before they arrive at the forest gate, Gandalf, uh, the wizard who has guided their party and protected them and even rescued them several times along the way, announces to them that he will not be going with them into the forest. And the dwarves are just filled with despair. How in in the world are we going to make it through? Uh, What if we get lost? What if we find more goblins? Or what if there's something else that's worse? 
And yet, Gandalf leaves them with one final instruction before he leaves. Don't leave the path. Whatever you do, stay on the path. If you stick to the path, you might just make it through the other side. If you go off the path, a thousand to one, you will never find it again and never get out of Mirkwood. Well, I kind of wonder if uh, Timothy felt a little bit like the dwarf standing on the edge of Mirkwood when he received this second letter from Paul, which recounts to him the dangerous path before him, the trials that he and the church are going to be facing, but then announces that Paul's not going to be with him much longer. Paul describes this situation in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It's going to get hard. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous. Paul just had a way of going on. Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It's going to get rough. Walking in faithfulness to Christ is not going to be easy for God's people. But then Paul tells Timothy the really bad news that he's about to die. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And, and you read that, and it's like, that's great for Paul. Wonder, I'm so glad he gets, but what about us? How are we going to make it without Paul or one of the apostles with us? What will Timothy do? What will the churches do? Paul had basically been Timothy's Gandalf. He had been his guide and his mentor. And now, with the apostles like Paul beginning to go the way of all the earth, uh, what's the church to do in their absence? They were, the apostles were the, were the church's connection to Jesus. They were the ones who knew him, who learned from him, who, who saw him raised from the dead, who passed on his teaching. They're beginning to go the way of all the earth, and so how is the church going to hear from God now? How will they stay true and make it safely through Mirkwood and avoid the kind of false teaching and false living that's about to get really bad? How is that going to happen if Paul's not going to be with him? Well, that's really what this letter is about. That's what this letter is about. It's Paul's final instructions to Timothy and the church at the edge of Mirkwood, just before he departs. And his central charge in chapter 2, verse 4, is this. Preach the word. That is Paul's version of don't leave the path. Preach the word. Hold fast to the word. Look at 
the charge in full in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And, and notice how it addresses some of these problems they're about to face. Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, that's code for, I'm about to say something really, really important. So I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus in the appearing of his kingdom. Preach the word. Don't leave the path. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Keep your head. Endure suffering. It's going to get hard. Do the work of an evangelist. Don't stop preaching the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. Preach the word. So how will the church remain faithful and effective until Christ returns We must preach the word. And the word Paul is talking about is the all scriptures he just mentioned a couple verses earlier in chapter 3, verse 16. So to stay on the path is to hold fast to the scriptures. Don't add to it or take away from it. Don't turn away from it to the right or to the left. The scriptures are the sufficient revelation of God for the ongoing life of and health and ministry of the church. But that raises a few questions for us that I want to explore together this morning. Uh, Namely, what word, what word is he talking about? Why the word? And what now? So, So what word, what does Paul mean when he says all scriptures? What's he referring to? Because different Christian traditions have answered that in different ways. So what word? Second, why the word? What is it about the scriptures that make it the sufficient revelation of God? Such that we need not and should not improve upon it or add to it or take away from it. Why the word? And then third, what now? What difference does all of this make for us? So we'll start with first question, what word? This is what we call the canon of scripture, canon with one N. Uh, what does Paul refer to when he says in verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God? If we're going to answer that, though, we need to take a broader look at the passage and kind of see what he's saying all along here, starting in verse 10. So you, know, you look at chapter 3 again. Paul has, has warned Timothy at the beginning of chapter 3 about what's going to happen in the last days, which is kind of one of the phrases he and other New Testament writers use to talk about the time between Christ's first and second coming. And and after warning him about how badly people are going to stray from the path, he then encourages Timothy in verses 10 to 17, basically by saying, I have confidence that you know better. It's going to get bad. People are going to do these things, but I have confidence that you know better, that you're going to stay on the path. And there's two reasons for his confidence. We see them both in verse 14. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, stay on the path, knowing from whom you have learned it, 
the example of the people you have in your life. That's his first reason he's confident. Because Timothy has shared life with people who are good examples. People like Paul, people like his mother and his grandmother. And knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So notice here that that when Paul is kind of bolstering Timothy, kind of encouraging him in, in the way forward, notice that he doesn't just point him to a book, you know, take these two verses and call me in the morning or something like that. As though the Bible's some kind of magical talisman that if I just read it, it's going to keep me from sin or, or, or as though my goal is just to have all the right information. Uh, that's, the, the picture here is much more rich. Uh, there's an intensely relational aspect to walking with God. And so Paul has shared his life with Timothy. He says in verse 10, verse 10 You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. You have been with me and seen how I've operated, how I've stayed on the path through this intense persecution. So don't forget that example or or don't forget the example of your mother uh, Eunice or your grandmother Lois, whom he references in chapter 1. But what is it about their example? What is it that, that Paul ultimately points Timothy to through his example or grounds him in? It's the Scriptures. So there's a relational aspect. We cannot stay faithful alone. But what is it that is our ultimate anchor as a community? It's the Scriptures. That's what Paul ultimately points him to. You have been acquainted with the Scriptures since childhood. The same Scriptures his mom and his grandma imparted to him. And Paul points him to these Scriptures as the key of faithfulness because, as he says in 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God's Word. It's what we've been talking about the last several weeks. All Scripture is breathed out by God. When we hold this book, God is speaking to us. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are the sufficient revelation of God for the ongoing life, health, and ministry of the church. That's Paul's contention but then comes our question from a minute ago what word which word are we talking about what does paul mean when he says all scriptures here and it you know in the immediate context here of of paul's letter he's talking primarily about the hebrew scriptures the old testament that's what we call the old testament because remember that when paul's writing this letter the new testament's still being written It doesn't quite exist in the way that we know it today. And so when he says all Scripture is breathed out by God, he's talking mainly about the Scriptures of Israel, which the church has inherited. That was the early church's Bible until the New Testament was complete. And so so that's the, the primary reference that Paul's talking to. But by the time Peter writes his second letter, 2 Peter, 
some of Paul's own writings are already being recognized alongside of the Old Testament as Scripture. We, we talked about that a couple weeks ago as well, Second Peter 3, 15 and 16, that Peter includes Paul's letters with the Scriptures. And so, so while Paul is talking primarily about the Old Testament, what he says about the Old Testament, I think, rightly applies to everything that belongs in the Bible. That all of it is word of God. All of it is useful for our teaching, our correction, our training and equipping. And so then the next question becomes, so what belongs in the Bible? Which books, you know, how can we be confident that these are the right books, that we didn't miss some? And, and some Christian traditions have different lists there. Uh, if you have um, grown up in either Roman Catholic or Orthodox context, you'll notice that the Bible in your hands here has a, is, a few, is a little bit lighter than some of those other ones. There are fewer books in this one. Uh, so why is that? And, of course, that's a huge question that we're not going to solve in the next 30 seconds right here in the pulpit, just so you know. That's a long conversation. Uh, but a few things worth uh, noting with regard to that. And so So again, if you grew up Catholic or Orthodox, you're familiar probably with what's called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha is a word that means hidden. And so it's it's an additional 14 or so uh, books or portions of books that that you won't find in a Protestant Bible. And the reason you don't find them in a Protestant Bible is because Protestants generally don't recognize them as divinely inspired Scripture. We don't see them as Word of God doesn't mean they're bad to read. They're quite good. Uh, I enjoy them. Uh, They uh, are great for history. They're even useful for edification. They're just not Scripture. And that's the difference. That's one of the differences you would find between a Catholic and a Protestant tradition is uh, which books belong in the Bible. But there are several reasons why Protestants have concluded the way that they have. And, and again, it's a long conversation, but here are a few brief points. Uh, first, the books that make up the Apocrypha come from a time before Christ and are written by Jewish people and typically are included in among the Old Testament, but uh, in, in modern editions, they're, they're placed back with the Old Testament, but they were never received by Israel as divine scripture. And the church gets the Old Testament from Israel. And so that's kind of an important factor, that the people who produced the book didn't recognize them as scriptures. Uh, Second, um, none of the apocryphal writings themselves claim to be scripture. That's another important point. Uh, In fact, the the prologue to Ecclesiasticus, uh, the author explicitly says and distinguishes what he's writing from the rest of the Old Testament. He's, not, he's trying to make sure nobody makes the mistake of thinking what he's saying is Scripture. Third, uh, none of the apocryphal writings are quoted in the New Testament as Scripture. So you have no... Oftentimes throughout the New Testament, they're going back and looking at Old Testament passages resting on the authority. That doesn't happen with any of the apocryphal books. And then finally, it wasn't actually until after the Protestant Reformation that the... Uh, which challenged the inspiration of the apocryphal books. It wasn't until after the Protestant Reformation that those books were officially canonized 
as being part of the Bible, the Council of Trent in 1546. Up to that point, even Catholics were divided on whether or not they belonged in the Bible or whether they were simply books of the church. For instance, Jerome, who translated the Old Testament and the New Testament into Latin and gave us what's called the Vulgate, uh, Jerome himself did not receive those books or see them as belonging to the Bible, but as books of the church instead. And so, again, that's a big conversation. I'm happy to talk about it at Starbucks afterwards. Um, uh, seriously, any anytime there's something, well, he said something weird. I wonder what that means. Always up for Starbucks in a conversation and always anxious to hear from you, too, because sometimes I say something weird and I need to hear from you. Talked about that last week with the authority of Scripture. Um, but anyhow, there are good reasons to apply what Paul says about the Old Testament, that it, all Scriptures God breathed. There's good reasons to apply what he says in 316 to the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your hands. The, these books are the sufficient revelation of God for the life of the church. But then there's another question. Should we expect more books someday? So, so maybe not those books, but are there other books? Is the canon closed, in other words? Uh, is, it, is the Bible finished or complete? And that actually brings us to our second big question, and that is, why the Word? Why the Scriptures? What we call the sufficiency of Scripture. So of all of the things that Paul could point Timothy and the church to in order to guide them through this dark world in the absence of the apostles, in the absence of Jesus in the flesh, why does he point to Scripture? Why is that his emphasis? He doesn't doesn't point to an infallible office in the church. He doesn't point to a living prophet who can keep that direct line going. He points to an abiding word, the scriptures, the apostolic message, which has been written down for all generations. Why does he do that? Because, as one author puts it, the scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. The scriptures contain everything we need for knowledge of salvation and godly living. They are sufficient. They are sufficient. They're enough. And we see that in Paul's words to Timothy right here in chapter 3. The scriptures are sufficient for both salvation and for godliness. So look at 3.14 again. As for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They contain everything we need to know for knowledge of God in salvation because they reveal to us our sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why the Scriptures are sufficient. They reveal to us our sufficient Savior. These these words in this book, they reveal to us our created purpose. They tell us, What we were made for, that we were made in God's image to be his children, to to serve him as uh, servants of his kingdom. It's these words that reveal to us our fallen condition. They tell us what's wrong, what's wrong with our hearts, what's wrong with this world, and how our sin has separated us from God and brought us under his righteous judgment. 
it's these words that reveal to us God's divine promise that he will restore what was broken and what was lost in the beginning, that he has a plan to redeem a people for himself. And it's these words that reveal to us how God has been faithful to fulfill that plan through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might be saved through faith in him. That's the overarching message of Scripture. And it's through that message that relationship with God is possible, that salvation is possible. To the point that the New Testament actually describes the Christian as, quote, having been born again through the living and abiding word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. We are born again. We receive new life through Jesus, by the Spirit. But how do we know about all of that? Through the living and abiding Word of God. The Scriptures are powerful to save. In fact, if you, you think about it, there's really nothing we have that we can give anybody else that has any power apart from the Word of God. The Word of God is what does the work of God as the Spirit applies it to our lives. The Word of God does the work of God as the Spirit applies it to our lives. And that's true, not only for salvation, but also for what we call sanctification, or growing in godliness, growing in character. And we see that uh, as we continue in verse 16. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that so that the man of God might may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, so how is it that a Christian can change? How do I grow in, in godliness? How do I grow in my knowledge of God? How do I stay on the right path? How am I trained in righteousness? That I might serve God? How do I become equipped for every good work? That's a pretty big label, Paul puts it there. Every good work. How do I do that? Through the scriptures. We do not need to add to it to meet today's challenges or subtract from it to mesh with today's ideals. The word of God is perfect and complete, giving us all we need to know about Christ's salvation and godliness. Because Jesus is sufficient, the Bible that testifies to him is sufficient for salvation and for the ongoing life of the church. And so we can be confident in the sufficiency of Scripture for both salvation and godliness. And for that same reason, we can actually be confident that the Bible is, in fact, complete. That we're not waiting for a new book to show up uh, somewhere. Uh, that the canon is, as we put it, closed. Because the redemptive work of God is finished, so the revelation which points to that redemptive work is therefore understandably complete. Revelation points us to redemption. God makes himself known for our salvation and godliness. And so if there's nothing else Christ needs to do in order for salvation or godliness to work, there's no other word we need to expect from God. He's given us a 
a sufficient revelation of himself in Christ. Listen to what Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. There's something final in that statement, isn't there? His son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. After making purification for his for sin, not his sins, our sins, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's a finality to God's revelation in those verses that in these last days, he spoke lots of ways back then. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And there's a finality in the, in, in the revelation because there's a finality in Christ's redemption here. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become Superior. There's no redemptive work left to be accomplished. And so we are waiting, as one author puts it, we're awaiting no other king to rule us. We need no other prophet like Muhammad. There could be no further priest to atone for our sins. The work of redemption has been completed. And we must not separate redemption from revelation. Both were finished and fulfilled in the Son. So there is a sense in which if we suggest that we need more books to the Bible or a new word from God, what we're saying essentially is that what Christ has done wasn't enough. And we're still waiting for God to act in a new way. The Bible is complete because Christ is enough. It's sufficient for the ongoing life of the church. And so what now? What difference does it make? to understand and receive the Scriptures as God's sufficient revelation for our ongoing life. Well, first, it means we need to prioritize spending time in God's Word. I think, I'm pretty sure, that's an application I've made in every single sermon in this series. Making sure that we're paying attention, spending time in God's Word, individually, as a family, together as a congregation, We don't need to add to the word. We do not need to improve upon it. And we certainly should not take away from it. What we need is to preach it and teach it. Back to Paul's central charge. Verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so the Bible needs to be central in every relationship in the church, in every ministry of the church. You know, as, as we think about our gathered worship here, my own conviction is that the, because of the sufficiency of Scripture, that means that our main diet when we gather as a congregation under God's Word ought to be what's called exposition of Scripture. And, and by that, it's simply the kind of preaching where the message of the sermon should be driven by the message of the passage that's being preached. 
It's not up to me to come up with something clever and cute and say something fresh and new that might be based on Scripture. It's my job to say what God's saying. Nothing more, nothing less. And so that is a conviction that comes from the belief that the Scriptures are sufficient. That what is needed is a word from God, not a word from me. Uh, It's also the reason that we usually work through whole books of the Bible uh, so that we can understand it and put ourselves under the whole counsel of God and not just kind of grab bag what I want to talk about or, or what I think somebody needs. Maybe there's something you need that I don't know, but God knows. And going through, uh, working through his word as he's given it to us uh, exposes our hearts to parts of the Bible, frankly, I would never pick to preach on if I had a choice. They're hard or they're uncomfortable or whatever, but it's not up to me. It's God's word. All scriptures God breathed, both Old and New Testament, and we need to have a healthy diet of all God's word as God's people. We need to trust the sufficiency of scripture that God's word will accomplish what he sends it to do. And so we need to have a priority of scripture. Uh, But second, and, and especially in light of the kind of problems that Timothy was expecting to face Uh, and that we still face today. We also need to work hard at handling the word correctly. Need to work hard at handling the word correctly to make sure that what we're saying and hearing is what God is actually saying and hearing and not just what I wish he said or something like that. Uh, Paul puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. For those of you who grew up in Awana, that's like the key verse right there where the acronym comes from. But think about what it's saying, that that we are to work hard, to do our best, to present ourselves to God as one approved who who doesn't need to be ashamed. And what is it that, that can enable me to stand with God's word in my hand unashamed? It's when I rightly handle it so that when what I'm saying, God, God it, it, you know, imagine for a moment, because it's really true, God is with us right now. Is he saying, wow, that's what I was talking about in that passage as I'm talking? Or is he saying, I have no clue what that guy's talking about? He's totally misreading what I wrote. What's God saying? If I stand up here and announce to you something other than what God's saying in the word, I should be ashamed. We all need to work hard at rightly handling the word of truth. And that's hard. That's why we have to work hard at it. But the Bible does not mean whatever we want it to mean. It means what God intends it to mean. And there will always be a temptation in this dark, fallen world for people to, as as Paul put it in chapter 4, to no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and to turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There's always going to be a temptation. And so we must stay on the path. We have to work hard at understanding God's word correctly. And that's, that's an important part of the discipleship process when we spend time with each other in mentorship, that we're reading God's word and learning how to read it. It's a big part of what we do in small groups together or some of our Sunday school classes. Um, But here are four simple reminders to help us handle God's word well. 
It's a long conversation. It's, it's something you learn through a lifetime of discipleship. But here are four simple reminders to get us started. First, read the Bible in context. Handling the word well means requires us to read the Bible in context. We need to pay attention to the context, to historical or literary. Uh, and when you do that, it's a lot harder to make the Bible say something it doesn't actually say. Uh, for instance, one could make the argument that in Psalm 14.1, it says there is no God. One could say from that, therefore the Bible teaches that there is no God. And the phrase, there is no God, occurs in Psalm 14.1. In fact, it occurs in Psalm 54.1 as well, two times. Does the Bible teach there is no God? You have to look at the context, the whole verse. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. makes a big difference when you read it in context. And so we need to read in context. Second, we need to read the Bible in conversation with God. In other words, we need to read it in prayer, asking God to make himself known to you in this word. Reading the Bible is not this academic engagement. It's not that we don't need to think. We need to think. But it is a relational engagement. It's spending time with a person through his word. And so we need to read the Bible in conversation with God, in prayer. Third, we need to read the Bible in community. We need each other to help us understand what God's saying. Uh, to help us not only understand it, but obey it. And, and not just the brothers and sisters right here in this room, but other friends outside of this room, other uh, Christians from other traditions, and even those who've gone before us. We're not the only ones reading the Bible, and we're not the first people to read the Bible. And so we should keep that in mind as we read the Bible and read it in community. And then third, or excuse me, fourth, uh, and finally, read the Bible with an eye toward Christ and his fulfillment of it. So if Jesus is the center of the message of Scripture, if he's the center of the story, then part of understanding the word is understanding how these different passages either prepare the way or point to or are grounded in who he is and what he has done as our Savior and King. Remember what we sang a little bit ago, that in that great song of asking God to meet us through His Word, the key refrain was, show us Christ. Show us Christ. This is the Word of Christ. And so we need to read the Bible with an eye toward Christ. And that brings us to the final implication. If This book is God's sufficient revelation for us. We need to read it and prioritize it, and we need to get it right. We need to read it correctly and be willing to be challenged if if we're not reading it correctly. We're all in process, all growing, but we need to apply it as though our life depends on it, because it really does. We need to apply and obey the Word as though our life depends on it, Because it actually does. As Moses said to Israel in the wilderness, and as Jesus quoted when facing off with Satan in the desert, is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And they weren't just talking about learning it or or even just believing it, but obeying 
the word. Obey the Bible like your life depends on it. Because it does. And, and that's not because our relationship with God is some sort of legalistic you know, transaction. That, that if I don't, if I you know, mess up and don't obey it, he's going to you know, take back everything he said about what Christ did for me and so on and so forth. That's not what we're talking about. It's not something where I do something good for God and then he rewards me and so I just got to keep up the show. That's not it at all. The word is not a handbook for self-improvement or spiritual bragging rights. The word is food for weak and weary travelers. It's what it is. And it's the only food that really lasts and that truly satisfies. Everything else in this world will leave you hungry and disappointed. Only life according to God's word, life the way he meant it to be lived, only that will provide a lasting satisfaction and joy that nothing on this earth can compare with and nothing on this earth and nothing in hell can take away from you. That's it. You know, I'm not particularly old as pastors go. Uh, this was a quite a point of conversation five years ago in the search committee, Garrett. Uh, but... In my years, I have seen far too many people start off well and then stray from the path. Mentors, friends, family, colleagues, people I've discipled and mentored. Some decided at some point that the Bible wasn't really sufficient, that they wanted another word from God and turned away from this word to something different. Some decided that what the Bible offers wasn't sufficient, that they thought this world could give them something better. As your pastor, as your friend, as your brother in the Lord, hear a passionate plea, don't leave the path. Don't do it. Whatever you see out there, the, the party that, the, that the, uh, the dwarves saw happening, the, and the, the promise of food out there in the wilderness, and they never got back on. Of course, that analogy breaks down because Gandalf eventually comes back and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> keep the analogy to, to where I'm using it. It's a, it's a deadly warning. It's a deadly warning. Don't leave the path. The Bible really is the sufficient revelation of God for our, the ongoing life, health, and ministry of the church. And if you stick to the path, by God's grace, you will make it to the other side. If you go off, you may never find it again and may never get out of Mirkwood. To quote Moses one more time in Deuteronomy 32, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Don't leave the path. Let's pray. God, would you fill our hearts with a deep satisfaction and commitment and security that you are trustworthy 
that your word is trustworthy and true. That you, in your love, have made yourself known to us. And that you've done it through your word, your written word, by directing our hearts to the living word, Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be content in him. And may our contentment in Christ anchor us in your true and steadfast and sufficient word. Keep us on the path, God. May we be be fruitful and faithful by staying on the path. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.